Hi, we're Josh and Arielle Wamsley, owners of Green Valley Tree LLC, based in North Wyndham. We're proud to sponsor Connecticut East this week and to serve the communities of Wyndham and New London counties with our tree removal and plant health care services. Visit our website at greenvalleytreeworks.com for a full list of our services or give us a call on 860-234-4041. We look forward to hearing from you. They serve their country as members of the military and are still serving their communities today. We talk to four Eastern Connecticut veterans who are being inducted into the Veterans Hall of Fame. Plus, we take a look at other stories making the headlines from around the region. This is Connecticut East This Week. Hello, I'm Brian Scott-Smith. The call to duty is not for everyone. It takes exceptional people to do exceptional jobs under exceptional circumstances. But there are many who decide to serve their country in one way or another. And once they leave whatever service they were in, many continue to help their communities. Each year, the Connecticut Veterans Hall of Fame asks for nominations for new inductees. And these come from people who know veterans and believe they should be recognized for their continued commitment to their community. Many of this year's inductees were from or live in Eastern Connecticut, and I caught up with four of them to hear their very personal stories. Hello, I'm Heather Sandler, and I'm a U.S. Navy veteran. I grew up in New Hampshire, actually, and met my husband when I went to college, so that's how I ended up in Connecticut. And then after college, before I, my husband and I got together, I decided that I wanted to serve my country and come from a family of service. My dad was a veteran. My brother was in serving in the Army at the time when I enlisted in the Navy. My grandpa was a Navy fireman, and my dad was in the Air Force, as I said. And so I wanted to sort of, um, I wanted to serve my country. And I, I, it sounds kind of corny when people ask me, like, why did you join? And I was like, I wanted to serve. But I really honestly did. And, and when I went in, I, I made a promise to myself and my parents that I would get out when I stopped having fun. So after 10 years, I wasn't having any more fun and had been all over the world, quite literally had been all over the world. And it was time, it was time for me to get out. So while I was in, I did four deployments, three to the Middle East and one to the Mediterranean. I loaded bombs and missiles on fighter jets on aircraft carriers. So not a typical job and not what people seem to think when they see me. And I know because we're on a podcast, it's hard to see what my physical stature is, but, uh, you know, much younger and much smaller and not typically what you think of when you think of somebody um, in the Navy loading bombs and missiles on fighter jets. But it was quite an experience for me. So when I was time for me to get out, I got out and moved to Connecticut and kind of started my journey to continue serving veterans. Um, Took me a little while to figure out what I wanted to do when I got there. Thought I wanted to be a nurse. I should say that I have a ba- I had a bachelor's degree when I went into the Navy in social work. Then I decided I wanted to be a social worker, and that's what I did. And during the course of my journey of trying to figure out what I wanted to do when I grew up after my service, had the f- very fortunate internship that allowed me to meet just some genuinely great individuals, fellow veterans, fellow female veterans, and they really kind of brought me into their orbits and will be eternally grateful for having been able to have that opportunity. 
to work with those individuals and continue to be called them my friends now, just not my mentors. I found myself at a crossroads um, towards the end of my enlistment where I was just working with individuals who maybe didn't value me as a woman. I was sexually harassed while I was on my last tour, my last two tours, my last two deployments. Um, it was a rough patch for me. I promised myself, as I said, that I wouldn't stay and if I wasn't having any more fun and I had just experienced something that I just never thought I would have experienced before and I hadn't experienced it so I really didn't know what it was I didn't have a name for it while it was happening to me and it wasn't until many years later that I figured out what it was that was happening to me and and so it was it was my time and um, and I worked for some individuals who like I said just didn't value me as a person or me as an individual or, or especially me as a woman, many, many times was told that um, I wasn't good enough for them. I was an only woman in a, in, a, in a job that was dominated by men. And so it was a very um, eye-opening experience for me. So having made it through that last deployment, I just quite frankly could not wait to be done. There are truly genuine, great individuals who serve our country and there are individuals who are not great. And there are individuals who will sour your taste. I always tend to have a global view of things. I will not let one bad apple ruin it. You know, I had eight great years and then I had a lot of fun and I worked for some really incredible individuals. And so I would never let that sour my feelings about the military and the men and women who serve our military. I think it puts me in a, a very unique class of individuals who, you know, made it through 10 years of service. And I, I quite, you know, know that I'm very fortunate uh, that I was older and a little more wiser than maybe some of my other female colleagues. But um, I really think that it didn't sour how I felt about the Navy. It did open my eyes to that it does happen and it still happens and it continues to happen. And just to do my best to make sure that it doesn't happen moving forward and to speak my truth. When I got out of the Navy in 2005 is when I moved to Connecticut and started sort of on an educational journey to try and figure out what I wanted to do with my life um, post-military service like to work on problems and fix problems. So I did kind of a, a macro version of social work and I work on problems and helping solve problems and develop policies. When I graduated from UConn, I had at that time a two and a half year old. And so I'm looking for work. I happened to volunteer on Senator Richard Blumenthal's um, Senate campaign for his first time in Senate. And he hired me to be his veterans liaison for um, constituent services in his office in Connecticut. And so I spent about five years with the senator working with constituents and, and helping them with VA benefits. And I certainly learned a lot about myself. I learned a lot about what is out there for veterans and how to help best help veterans. And I transitioned that role, role into helping and getting myself hired by the VA. So I work for the Department of Veterans Affairs, the federal VA. I went there to do work for the Benefits Administration as their congressional liaison and just wanted to do a little bit more with veterans and help veterans day to day. And so a year after I had been at, in my role at the VA, I switched over and I became a vocational rehabilitation counselor. And our program, we help veterans get back to work. We help them get retrained and now employed. That's what I currently do. Hi, I am Kay Robert Lewis, a proud 
veteran of the United States Air Force. I was a crew chief running testing and, and storage of air-to-air and air-to-ground missile systems at Holloman Air Force Base in New Mexico, Greenham Common in the UK, and RAF Welford, which was a storage facility. And uh, that was during the during the Vietnam era, and uh, that was also during when the uh, that was before the Berlin Wall came came down. So our mission was part of the overall NATO mission to be prepared to protect England in case something happened. Uh, Mom's British; she went through the Blitz. My grandfather, uncles, cousins, and great-grandfathers and, and great-great-grandfathers have all served in the military in England and uh, it's it seemed the thing to do at the time and it was a interesting four years. I can say I, I wouldn't have missed them for the world. I can tell you that, to, that uh, I have a niece who is now in the Air Force starting her 19th year and and her brother is starting his seventh year also in the air force so i guess military service is becoming a tradition in our family and uh, just following the trend and and the lead of some exceptional ancestors just meeting my grandfather a couple of times instilled the desire in me to serve. My father was also in the U.S. Air Force, 45 to 52. He met my mom in the U.K., got married, came came back home. So when I was born, I was um, a dual citizen. And, uh, and when I was 18 and the draft came out, I had to declare American or U.K. And I was here, so here I stay. The Vietnam veterans that, as a group, uh, we have we we decided that if our children and our kin ever had to go fight a war, that they wouldn't face some of the roadblocks coming back that we faced, whether it was in um, um, housing, education, healthcare, and I think you you can see the the fruits of those efforts in in the new GI in the new GI bills in in the um, in the improved health care nationwide uh, the the VA is the largest health care system and like any local hospital or, or, or group of hospitals it has issues it's not perfect but uh, I believe that Veterans, especially veterans in, in the position that I hold as a service officer, we try and exercise oversight about how things are going, what needs to improve, what needs to change. And I believe that we have been successful specifically over these last 15, 20 years. A lot of the work I have done has been in the capacity as a volunteer representative of the American Legion. For five years, I was the chairman of the National Veterans Affairs Commission, and we participated in in visiting VA hospitals nationwide and speaking to the veterans, to the staff, uh, to the doctors, to the directors, to the 
elected officials be, because as veterans we are we are civilians and uh, we can lobby Congress to support the VA. It makes it difficult for VA employees to get out and lobby. And we've had many interesting moments. It was through a, a American Legion Veterans Town, town Hall in um, Tucson, Arizona, that we found out that uh, uh, veterans were not getting the health care that they needed, that there was a, a quote-unquote secret scheduling list, and veterans who had um, potentially term, terminal diseases were waiting months of years to, to get an appointment at the VA hospital just because the VA hospital didn't, uh, the staff and the directors didn't feel that they could ask VA and the government for more money, more assistance. So that was a a, ter a terrible tragedy because people lost lost their lives, but it led to renewed look at the VA healthcare system. And uh, I was uh, honored to be part of that. I'm still part of the Veterans Affairs uh, Veterans Affairs Commission. And uh, I am currently serving as the American Legion service officer, and I've been doing this job for 11 years now. Hi, I'm Marco Reyes, and I'm a U.S. Navy veteran. I went into the service in 83. I joined the United States Navy. I was a bosun's mate, so we're the ones who drive the ships and operate the cranes, and we're the fools hanging over the side of the ship, sanding and grinding and painting. But it was very exciting. I joined shortly after females were being allowed to go on to the subtenders. Uh, sub At that time, the females were still not allowed to be on any war type of um, ships. So I'm from a crew of 1,200 and there were less than 300 females aboard. We were still very, very new. We were no longer called waves at that time. We were called WINS, Women in Naval Services. So it was still pretty new. With the women, we were a very small group in a crew of 1,200. But it was very exciting. I mean, I got, I got to do some things that were not normally, you know, pretty, pretty much everybody understands now that women can be in combat. But in 1983, we were not allowed to. So it was pretty exciting. I was able to get pulled into a pilot program where they were testing women on submarines. And I did get to go out on a submarine for the day. Because I was a bosun's mate, they let me, they let me drive the submarine. And um, that was really, really exciting. And I was also pulled for a pilot program to go on the USS Constellation, which is an aircraft carrier. And I was there as a master at arms, which people know them as military police. And I spent nine days aboard. And so I spent half the day doing military security. And then the other half, I worked with the deck department, which really allowed me to do some of the things that I would not have had a chance to do on my own ship. So when I, was eight, when I was getting ready to go up for E5, then I actually had hands-on experience and not just reading it from a book. So I, I, had a, I, I was able to do things in the Navy that obviously I would not have been able to do in the civilian sector. I mean, these women are doing some spectacular duties out there. I mean, to have the first woman to be in command of a submarine or having the women, you know, you see the women in uniform at the Pentagon and they're advising the president of the United States. It's very, very exciting before when, when you know, they just pretty much says, well, you can't do that job and you can't do that job. And it's exciting that women now have the opportunity 
to be able to stand next to the men and do the same job. And it's true, I just really feel that women in the military do not get the same recognition as men. And, and you know, it's not even necessarily military. I mean, I when I got out of the military, I went into law enforcement. I was a deputy sheriff, and it was the same thing even in law enforcement. Um, I think any single time that you're mixing the genders in what has been predominantly a male role, I think women end up getting to, getting forgotten when they exceed in those roles. And I'm really hoping in the future that's going to change, and we're going to see more women being inducted into the Connecticut Veteran Hall of Fame. So right now I work at the New London Homeless Hospitality. We are a shelter. Um, my job is transitional case manager and I work strictly with the veterans. So we have Project Home. Um, it is four apartments, two clients in each apartment. And you know, it, it's simple to say that I just help homeless veterans get housed. Uh, but it's so much more than that because I work with them in getting their veteran benefits, state benefits, um, simple things like food stamps, their social security benefits, whether it's disability or retirement, you know, helping them get clothing, employment, get their cars back on the road. It's really just so that they can get a fresh start and hopefully prevent them from becoming homeless again. One of the things that I discovered when I got out of the military is that you know, we weren't given a book to say, okay, this is all the things that you're entitled to now that you're a veteran. We don't get that. What I have found in my own personal experience is that most of the time that I found out that I was eligible for something, it was because I learned it from another veteran. It was another veteran that told me I was able to file for a service-connected disability. It was another veteran that told me I was eligible to receive the, um, my, my free, free education under vocational rehabilitation. And, and I just think that the best way to help veterans is to have another veteran to help guide them. We, we talk the same language. We've had similar experiences. You know, we are a family, you know, within ourselves. And I just, you know, it's one of those things where you just have to pay it forward. I go to work and I do my job. And that's what I tell people all the time. I go to work, I do my job. And you know, you know, I don't think you really, uh, I don't think that sometimes I understand the full impact that I have on people's lives. To me, you know, I, I, I helped you get housed. I helped you do the stuff, move on. It's time for me to focus on the next client that needs my assistance. But when I, when I talked to them afterwards and when I read those letters that they wrote about me, I was like, wow, I didn't realize that I had such an impact on their life. It, it was, uh, I'm telling you, it, it was, um, it could be a little overwhelming, but you know, I, I'm proud of the work that I do and I'm grateful that, um, that it does get recognized by my clients because at the end of the day, those are really the only ones that matter to me or are the veterans that I serve. Hello, my name is Ted Graziani and I'm a veteran of the United States Army, served in Vietnam, 67, 68, and damn proud of it. I got home in 1968, and I didn't know what was going on in the States, but I found out real fast. It wasn't popular to say that you were in the military, which is a sad commentary for our country. The country was split right down the middle. Those who uh, blamed the warriors instead of the politicians, and we were treated with no respect. And I know a lot of Vietnam veterans who harbor a lot of bitterness into this, to this day. And quite frankly, I wanted to give back. And 
this is my opportunity. Uh, I ran for the Board of Selectmen in my town. I was elected four times, and then I was fortunate to be elected into the uh, Connecticut House of Representatives, which I spent 12 years there, and a good portion of it as the veterans uh, chairman. And we addressed a lot of the things, and I say we collectively addressed a lot of the things to shore up what we can do for our current military, particularly the Guard and Reserve, because they're the ones that, uh, quite frankly, how often could you go to the well? We've had one or two deployments. They've had multiple deployments. And I can't fathom the pressure and the anxiety about those that are left behind their family members. I was born in the Bronx, moved over to Rockland County in Nanuet, and graduated Nanuet High School in 65. I was all set to go to community college, Rockland Community College. And then my father took another job in Ellington, Connecticut, believe it or not, which was a hamlet. So I graduated in May of 65, and by August, I was in Ellington. Totally different environment, you know, for a difference of 120 miles. I had no friends here. At least my brother and my sister had the opportunity to go into the school system. But I was the oldest, and my father and I, quite frankly, were not getting along. So when I turned 18, I went down to the Selective Service Board, signed up, and I told them I wanted to be drafted. And the woman looked at me and said, uh, do you realize what's going on in this world? I said, uh, absolutely. So she said, basically, we'll hold off for a while to give you the opportunity. But if you do decide to volunteer for the draft, we can certainly do that. And you might be saving somebody that's 22, 23, or 24 years old from going over there because you would indeed take their spot. So I went to see my father and I told him he was working at the trucking terminal. And I said, dad, I just, you know, I want to join the draft and his head shot back. And bear in mind, my father was a proud World War II veteran, two Purple Hearts, two Bronze Stars. He was at D-Day. He was at the, the Bridge of Remagen and the Battle of the Bulge. And I wanted to emulate him to prove it that I can do it. So basically what I did is I went back to the board and I said, I want to be drafted. Just give me my summers free. And she says she can't guarantee that, but she'll do what you can. So I went in August 22nd, 1966. But getting back to my father, I had my father tell my mother because I couldn't do it. And we're sitting around at the uh, dinner table. Well, my younger brother who's two years younger, my sister who's seven years younger. And my father said to mom, Edith, I have some good news to share with you. So my mother goes, what's that? And my father said, Teddy decide to be drafted into the army. And my mother ran off and she was crying for about you know, 10 or 15 minutes. She locked herself in the bathroom and she came out and she started yelling at my father saying that you made him do it. And I said, Ma, no, I did it on my own. 
I had to do something with my life. And uh, so I was sworn in August 22nd, 1966, went over there by boat April 1st or 3rd. It took us like 28 days to get there. First duty station was in uh, Fuloy, which is about 20 miles north of uh, Saigon. Then I was transferred to the 610th Transportation in Anke, which is in the Central Highlands. And then from there, I went with the advance party uh, to Da Nang. And uh, I volunteered. I extended my tour for two more months. And the reason I did that is at that time, if you were drafted and you were received orders, with more than 90 days left in active duty, you would go to your next duty station and they wanted to send me to Texas. And I told my company commander, uh, Donna Tucci, I said, once I'm home, I am home. I'm not going anywhere but home. And he said, the only way you can do that is to extend your tour by two months, which in fact I did. Came back to the States with less than 90 days and I was home. This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. The Red Cross is facing a severe blood shortage and is urging eligible donors of all types to give now and help avoid delays in life-saving medical care for patients this summer. More donations are needed to replenish the blood supply and help address the extraordinary blood needs of hospitals and patients right now. Be a hero to a patient in need. Use the blood donor app, Visit redcrossblood.org or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make an appointment to help save lives. Got stumps? Then call Green Valley Tree LLC and let us remove them for you. Our stump grinder is quick and efficient, leaving your property stump-free in no time. Our stump grinding services are available for homeowners, contractors, and municipalities alike. Call us for a quote at 860-234-4041 and find out about our other services at our website, greenvalleytreeworks.com. We're family-owned and fully licensed. Time now for a look at some of the other stories making the headlines in the region recently. New London's Guard Arts Centre has received a federal grant of $830,000 through the Shuttered Venue Operators Grant Program, formerly known as the Save Our Stages Act. The program includes $16 billion in grants to venues closed during the COVID-19 pandemic and is administered through the U.S. Small Business Administration. U.S. Senator Richard Blumenthal visited the Guard recently to discuss the grant. He was one of many senators who pushed to make sure that entertainment venues receive recognition and funding related to closure due to the pandemic. Blumenthal praised the executive director of the Guard, Steve Siegel, for his commitment to not only his theatre, but to every other venue in the state. His heart was in it, not just for New London, not just for the Guard, but for the cause of the performing arts, the cultural institutions that help make it so great. Because, you know, we don't have the Grand Canyon, we don't have oil wells, we don't have the Rocky Mountains. What we have is really creative, smart, Siegel said the federal funds will allow the theatre to recoup expenses over the past year, pay off debt and help fund a reopening on September 5th. In the day this week, families have been busy selecting blossoms in the cutting field at Buttonwood Farm in Griswold. 
The 18th annual Sunflowers for Wishes fundraiser switched to a pick-your-own model this year with a $2 charge to visit the cutting field and $2 per flower. All proceeds go to Make-A-Wish Foundation. More than $1 million has been raised since the Buttons began the fundraiser. In the Norwich Bulletin this week, well before Governor Lamont signed a bill on July 20th banning the immediate use of firefighter foam containing forever chemicals in training, many local fire departments had long eschewed using the substance except in rare circumstances. A full ban on the use of foams containing per and polyfluoroalkyl substances or PFAS is effective October 1st, including for active fires. Though its prohibition in training activities has already gone into effect years after the Norwich Fire Department stopped training with it. And in the Chronicle this week, one of the oldest family-run businesses in Willimantic has been sold, with the DeVivo family confirming they have sold Willimantic Waste Paper Company. Casella Waste Systems, based in Rutland, Vermont, announced it acquired the company. Thomas DeVivo, one of Willie Waste's former owners and mayor of Wyndham, opted not to divulge the financial terms of the deal. When asked, he simply said confidential regarding the sale price. He said the change in ownership had taken place. That's all from us for this edition. Do send us your questions and story ideas to the show via our website at connecticut-east.com or Facebook or Twitter at Connecticut East and on Instagram at Connecticut East This Week, where you can also listen to the show again on demand. And please like, follow and share on your social media platforms too. I'm Brian Scott-Smith. Thank you for listening.